Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of this time together. We thank you for this book. We thank you for the wisdom that it contains that is rooted in your word. Lord, we pray that as we come from all sorts of different things that have been going on today, um, that you would help us to put those things aside and that you would open our hearts, that we would hear your voice through Lewis's words and through the scripture, and that you would use this time to draw us more and more into your kingdom. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you are very kind. I will dispute the greatness. Um, all right, we have a wonderful music clip that someone ought to get, not to put any pressure on you. Um, so let's just see if anyone knows what this is. It's not King's College Choir. So uh, that is a song by a somewhat obscure group, I will grant that they are somewhat obscure, called Guadalcanal Diary. And Guadalcanal Diary was part of the Athens, Georgia music explosion in the 1980s with REM and the B-52s and other groups like that. But one of the things that was interesting about Guadalcanal Diary is that many, many of their lyrics come right out of scripture, deal with scriptural concepts, even though they were not a Christian group. Uh, but Sleepers Awake is going to show up tonight, so we will get to that later. So let's begin by saying our verse together. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge, ooh, dear, hold on. know how that happened. Well, somehow it has gotten squeezed, but we will, we will say it anyway, because this is like those tricks that you do where words disappear and you have to try to remember them. All right, here we go. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead in the view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word be urgent in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. 
Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. And as we come to the end, I think one of the things that you will see as you reflect back on this book is how all of these people throughout this book have wanted to speak their own truth. They have wanted to hang on to their view of reality, um, but they have been confronted by the fact that they can't hold on to anything of this world and expect to go on into heaven. So, uh, probably at this point we don't really need to talk too much about how to approach this class since we're done. Uh, we, do, we do have uh, some new people from South Africa that are following, um, but I would just encourage you, you will hear the little part about on the beach and snorkeling in other classes, so go check those out. Um, so we are uh, going to do a quick review of what we had before, and uh, then we will move on into tonight. And if I, Mark Collins, are you about somewhere? Because it looks to me like we are having a little PowerPoint issue where there are things that are going off. Uh, so the first thing from last time, remember we're in chapter 13, and in chapter 13, we had the story of the great lady, uh, who at first they thought was going to be the Virgin Mary, uh, but it ended up being Sarah Smith from Golders Green. Uh, that great lady, I'm sure you've all heard of her. Uh, and the idea that he was getting across as her husband, or the person that used to be her husband, appeared in this sort of persona of two folks. So... Do you have an idea about how to fix that? Go to view and Let's do that for now. All right. That works for me. All right. Yes. So uh, this person that used to be her husband is divided into these two characters, the dwarf and the tragedian. And she tries to reason with the dwarf who's the real person, not the image. But this whole idea of the divided identity of hypocrisy uh, we talked about. And then this whole idea about the priority of repentance and seeking forgiveness. And here you see this woman, this great lady, who has all of these rewards in heaven, and she is the one that takes the initiative to apologize to him. And this is uh, something that is so rare in our culture today about being the one who is quick to ask for forgiveness. Then the tyranny of selfish desire. Um, we saw how uh, this dwarf, even when confronted with things and starting to try to get over to the other point of view, his selfishness and his years and years and years of practicing that selfishness make it almost impossible for him to be able to let go. Uh, then we have this contrast 
that's shown so beautifully in that chapter between craving love, love that wants things for its own ends, its desires to possess, to control, versus selfless love, the love that we see that's modeled in self-sacrifice. And obviously, one of those is better than the other. Uh, We also saw in this chapter a beautiful depiction of the power of love and joy, that this tragedian and the dwarf, deep as they are in this dysfunction and decades and decades of hypocrisy and sin, the love and joy that radiate out of Sarah Smith are a magnet, even in the midst of their sinfulness and their wrong views and everything else. And it almost, it is almost that love and joy, almost enough to pull him out of his sin. But it's such a reminder to us that as Christians, we are the ones in this culture that have love and joy. And so we need to be showing those to others. Uh, The idea of standing on your rights and how very dangerous that is. If you remember way, way, way back to, I think, the second class, um, when they were first getting on the bus, when they were down in the gray town, uh, we met a character named Ike. And all he can talk about is, all I want is my rights. All I want is my rights. What's this guy who was a murderer doing up here in heaven? I want my rights. And we see that did not work out very well for him. And this whole idea of standing on your rights is all over our culture right now. It is antithetical to the gospel. Using pity for manipulation. I know none of us have ever done that, ever. Um, I see this. Well, I shouldn't say that. Uh, (laughs) Let's just say if you spend time with toddlers, you will see toddlers who want to, with the quivering lip, you know, the, um, they will want to manipulate you and they'll want you to pity them to manipulate you to get cookies. Mm Mm-hmm. It's it's a real thing. Also, one of the beautiful things that we see in this chapter is that light and joy and love must triumph over darkness because light and joy and love are inextinguishable and they are part of uh, the Trinity, really. And remember that great verse in the prologue of John's Gospel, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And that is a great thing to remember. Um, If you get discouraged or you look at the news and you're tempted to despair, to remember that the light is shining in the darkness and the darkness has not and will not overcome it. So that brings us to tonight's uh, chapter and a half. Chapter 14 doesn't really even count as a chapter because it's almost like a little afterthought. Uh, But we're going to finish 13 and then uh, finish the book with 14. So the first thing is this idea of fellowship that we see that's so beautiful. So right before we get to this passage, what's just happened where we ended last week is Sarah Smith, this great lady, 
has been reaching out in the selfless love to this obnoxious tragedian and this nasty little dwarf and reaching out with love and grace and mercy and all of these things and ultimately they reject her and then just disappear. And so she's alone. So this is the next sentence. The lady was alone in that woodland place and a brown bird went hopping past her, bending with its light feet the grasses I could not bend. Presently, the lady got up and began to walk away. The other bright spirits came forward to receive her, singing as they came. The happy trinity is her home. Nothing can trouble her joy. She is the bird that evades every net, the wild deer that leaps every pitfall, like the mother bird to its chickens or a shield to the armed knight. So is the Lord to her mind in his unchanging lucidity. He fills her brim full with immensity of life. He leads her to see the world's desire. And we could literally spend the whole class just on that. But what Lewis is showing us here is that in heaven, you are not left alone with your sorrow. Um, that you actually can't even have sorrow in heaven because there is so much joy. And that as soon as this has happened, she is enveloped by these bright angelic spirits singing the truth to her that the Trinity is her home that she is drawn up into that eternal fellowship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that her joy cannot be troubled. And then there's a little discussion that takes place between Lewis and George MacDonald right after this, because Lewis is a little disturbed that the, the dwarf and the tragedian have just vanished and gone back to hell. So Lewis says this, and yet, and yet, said I to my teacher, when all the shapes and singing had passed some distance away into the forest, is it really tolerable that she should be untouched by his misery, even his self-made misery? And then MacDonald, I wish I could speak with a Scottish accent, but sorry. Would, would, you rather, would you rather he still had the power of tormenting her? He did it many a day and many a year in their earthly life. Well, no, I suppose I don't want that. What some people say on earth is that the final loss of one's soul gives the lie to all the joy of those who are saved. Ye see, it does not. I feel in a way that it ought to. That sounds very merciful, but see what lurks behind it. The demand of the loveless and the self-imprisoned that they should be allowed to blackmail the universe that till they consent to be happy on their own terms, no one else shall taste joy, that there should be the final power, that hell should be able to veto heaven. More on that later. And then back to true pity versus manipulation. Here's MacDonald. Son, son, it must be one way or the other. Either the day must come when joy prevails and all the makers of misery are no longer able to infect it, or else forever and ever the makers of misery can destroy in others the happiness they reject for themselves. I know it has a grand sound to say you'll accept no salvation which leaves even one creature in the dark outside, 
But watch that sophistry, or you'll make a dog in a manger the tyrant of the universe. The action of pity will live forever, but the passion of pity will not. The passion of pity, the pity we merely suffer, the ache that draws men to concede what should not be conceded, and to flatter when they should speak truth, the pity that has cheated many a woman out of her virginity, and many a statesman out of his honesty, that will die. It was used as a weapon by bad men against good ones. Their weapon will be broken. And what is the other kind, the action? It's a weapon on the other side. It leaps quicker than light from the highest place to the lowest to bring healing and joy, whatever the cost to itself, just like the lady reaching out in forgiveness. It changes the darkness into light and evil into good, but it will not, at the cunning tears of hell, impose on good the tyranny of evil. Every disease that submits to a cure shall be cured, but we will not call blue yellow to please those who insist on still having jaundice, nor make a midden of the world's garden for the sake of some who cannot abide the smell of roses. There is a lot to say about this. I'm going to be exercising great self-restraint. Okay, um, then the relative strength of heaven compared to hell. You say it will go down to the lowest, sir, but she didn't go down with him to hell. She didn't even see him off by the bus. Where would you have had her go? Why, where we all came from by that bus, that big gulf beyond the edge of the cliff, over there. You can't see it from here, but you must know the place I mean. My teacher gave a curious smile. Look, he said, and with the word he went down on his hands and knees. I did the same, how it hurt my knees, and presently saw that he had plucked a blade of grass. Using its thin end as a pointer, he made one see, after I'd looked very closely, a crack in the soil so small that I could not have identified it without this aid. I cannot be certain, he said, that this is the crack he came up through, but through a crack no bigger than that he certainly came. But, but, I gasped with a feeling of bewilderment, not unlike terror. I saw an infinite abyss and cliffs towering up and up, and then this country on top of the cliffs. Aye, but the voyage was not mere locomotion. That bus and all you inside it were increasing in size. Do you mean then that hell, all that infinite empty town, is down in some little crack like this? Yes. All hell is smaller than one pebble of your earthly world, but it is smaller than one atom of this world, the real world. Look at yon butterfly. If it swallowed all hell, hell would not be big enough to do it any harm or to have any taste. It seems big enough when you're in it, sir. And yet all loneliness, angers, hatreds, envies, and itchings that it contains, if rolled into one single experience, and put into the scale against the least moment of the joy that is felt by the least in heaven would have no weight that could be registered at all. Bad cannot succeed even in being bad as truly as good is good. If all hell's miseries together 
entered the consciousness of yon wee yellow bird on the bow there, they would be swallowed up without trace, as if one drop of ink had been dropped into that great ocean to which your terrestrial Pacific itself is only a molecule. I see, said I at last, she couldn't fit into hell. He nodded. There's not room for her, he said. Hell could not open its mouth wide enough. We're going to unpack that in a minute. For a damned soul is nearly nothing. It is shrunk, shut up in itself. Good beats upon the damned incessantly as sound waves beat on the ears of the deaf, but they cannot receive it. Their fists are clenched, their teeth are clenched, their eyes fast shut. First they will not, in the end they cannot, open their hands for gifts, or their mouths for food, or their eyes to see. Then this little bit where Lewis is referencing the harrowing of hell, then no one can ever reach them? Only the greatest of all can make himself small enough to enter hell. For the higher a thing is, the lower it can descend. A man can sympathize with a horse, but a horse cannot sympathize with a rat. Only one has descended into hell. And will he ever do so again? It was not once long ago that he did it. Time does not work that way when once you've left the earth. All moments that have been or shall be were or are present in the moment of his descending. There is no spirit in prison to whom he did not preach. And then this part is a little complicated. This is like in mere Christianity when Lewis is trying to explain God's time versus our time. And if it makes you feel like your head is going to explode, just don't worry about it. Don't worry, be happy, don't worry about this part. You may find it helpful, um, but if, you, if you're just like, what? Don't worry about it. So, in your own book, sir, said I, you were a universalist. Now, let me just stop for a minute. Um, universalist has meant different things at different stages. Um, today, when you hear universalist, what that means is usually someone that believes everyone is going to be saved, no matter what you believe, what you profess, whether you're religious, not religious, or nothing at all, that everybody goes to heaven, um, everybody passes, go and collects $200. That is not what universalism meant during this time period. And I don't wanna go off into a long lecture on theology about universalism and particularity and limited versus universal atonement and all of that kind of stuff. So just uh, go with it for right now. Uh, so you talked as if all men would be saved, and St. Paul too. Now obviously St. Paul did not talk in a way that would make you think it didn't matter what you believed. You can know nothing of the end of things or nothing expressible in those terms. It may be, as the Lord said to the Lady Julian, that all will be well, and all will be well, and all manner of things will be well. But it's ill talking of such questions. Because they're too terrible, sir? No, because all answers deceive. If you put the question from within time and are asking about possibilities, the answer is certain. The choice of ways is before you. Neither is closed. Any man may choose eternal death. 
Those who choose it will have it. But if you're trying to leap on into eternity, if you're trying to see the final state of all things as it will be when there are no more possibilities left but only the real, then you ask what cannot be answered to mortal ears. Now that's the important thing to remember right there, that these sort of speculations about what's happening when you're outside of our kind of time and you're in multiple dimensions and you're inside the mind of God, um, we are not going to get that figured out. Uh, time is the very lens through which you see, small and clear as men see through the wrong end of a telescope, something that otherwise would be too big for you to see at all. That thing is freedom, the gift whereby you most resemble your maker and are yourselves parts of eternal reality. But you can see it only through the lens of time and a little clear picture through the inverted telescope. It is a picture of moments following one another and yourself in each moment making some choice that might have been otherwise, neither the temporal succession nor the phantom of what you might have chosen and didn't is itself freedom. They are a lens. The picture is a symbol, but it's truer than any philosophical theorem or perhaps in any mystic's vision that claims to go behind it. For every attempt to see the shape of eternity, except through the lens of time, destroys your knowledge of freedom. Witness the doctrine of predestination, which shows, truly enough, that eternal reality is not waiting for a future in which to be real, but at the price of removing freedom, which is the deeper truth of the two. And wouldn't universalism do the same? You cannot know eternal reality by a definition. Time said we were gods. How long could you bear to look without time's lens on the greatness of your own soul and the eternal reality of her choice? Now, part of what's going on there is he's trying to explain the idea that time is a hugely important element in trying to understand all of this, and that the idea of free will and predestination are both true and they, they appear to be incompatible when we're in our time, but when you're in God's time, both of those things can be true because God is outside of time. When I send out the email, I'm gonna send the part from Mere Christianity that talks about this, which for some of you, you may find that helps. Others, you may find it makes it worse. Uh, but the, what, I, what I would say just to hold on to is that what he's saying here is that, yes, salvation happens in this life, that you are um, either going to be with the Lord or you are going to be forever without the Lord based on what happens in this life, um, that you don't get second chances down the road. He's also saying that you do have free will. He's saying that there is predestination, that God knows he can see the future, but he doesn't, he knows what you're going to choose because he's observing you from outside of time. Now, if this is making your head hurt, just don't worry about it. Yes, if I say so. <laughs> but the, the thing that Lewis is trying to get you to understand is that there are things that are holy mysteries. There are things that are holy mysteries. This is like the Trinity. One of the jokes among preachers is, which analogy about the Trinity are you going to use in your sermon? And then I'll tell you which heresy you just committed. 
Uh, because the Trinity is, there are things that you can say about it, but it is a holy mystery. It is beyond our comprehension. And we don't like that because we like to think we're smart and we should be able to understand everything. But the fact of the matter is God is God and we are not. And accepting that is the most important thing that we could ever do. And then uh, chapter 14, and suddenly all was changed. I saw a great assembly of gigantic forms, all motionless, all in deepest silence, standing forever about a little silver table and looking upon it. And on the table, there were little figures like chessmen who went to and fro doing this and that. And I know that each chessman was the idolum or puppet representative of some one of the great presences that stood by. And the acts and motions of each chessman were a moving portrait, a mimicry or pantomime, which delineated the inmost nature of his giant master. And these chessmen are men and women as they appear to themselves and to one another in this world. And the silver table is time. And those who stand and watch are the immortal souls of those same men and women. Then vertigo and terror seized me. Is that the way you're feeling after hearing all this? Vertigo and terror seized me. And clutching at my teacher, I said, is that the truth? Then all that I've been seeing in this country is false. These conversations between the spirits and the ghosts, were they only the mimicry of choices that had really been made long ago? And MacDonald replies, or might she not as well say, anticipations of a choice to be made at the end of all things, but ye do better to say neither. Ye saw the choices a bit more clearly than you could see them on earth. The lens was clearer but it was still seen through the lens. Do not ask of a vision in a dream more than a vision in a dream can give. A dream, then, then am I not really here, sir? No, son, he said kindly, taking my hand in his. It's not so good as that. The bitter drink of death is still before you. He thinks it would be good if Lewis had actually died and was in heaven. Uh, but it's not as good as that because he's actually still alive. Uh, the bitter drink of death is still before you. You're still only dreaming. And if you come to tell of what you've seen, make it plain that it was but a dream. See, make it very plain. Give no poor fool the pretext to think you are claiming knowledge of what no mortal knows. I'll have no Swedenborgs and no Vale Owens among my children. The vision of the chessmen had faded, and once more the quiet woods and the cool light before the sunrise were about us. Then, still looking at his face, I saw something that sent a quiver through my whole body. I stood at that moment with my back to the east and the mountains, and he, facing me, looked toward them. His face flushed with a new light. A fern, 30 yards behind him, turned golden. The eastern side of every tree trunk grew bright. Shadows deepened. All the time there had been bird noises, trillings, chatterings, and the like. But now suddenly the full chorus was poured from every branch. Cocks were crowing. There was music of hounds and horns. Above all this, 10,000 tongues of men and woodland angels, and the wood itself sang. 
It comes, it comes, they sang. Sleepers awake, it comes, it comes, it comes. One dreadful glance over my shoulder I essayed, not long enough to see, or did I see, the rim of the sunrise that shoots time dead with golden arrows and puts to flight all phantasmal shapes. Screaming, I buried my face in the folds of my teacher's robe. The morning, the morning, I cried, I'm caught by the morning and I am a ghost. But it was too late. The light like solid blocks, intolerable of edge and weight, came thundering upon my head. Next moment, the folds of my teacher's garment were only the folds of the old ink-stained cloth on my study table, which I had pulled down with me as I fell from my chair. The blocks of light were only the books which I had pulled off with it, falling about my head. I awoke in a cold room, hunched on the floor beside a black and empty grate, the clock striking three and the siren howling overhead. The end. So there's a lot going on there. Um, there are a couple of references in there that you might not have known. So just to clarify, Dame Julian of Norwich, I don't know how many of you have heard of her. Um, she was one of the great women teachers of the early church. Um, she lived in the 14th century, and she was a cloistered anchoress, which is sort of like a nun, basically. And she lived in this very small room and devoted herself to prayer, and she received all of these various revelations. Uh, and in that series of visions, one of the things that she received was a vision of a hazelnut. And if you've ever seen a hazelnut, a hazelnut's pretty small. But the idea that the whole world was actually just the size of that hazelnut. And you can see Lewis is influenced by that with this whole idea of relative sizes um, that we've just seen. Uh, but she also wrote this beautiful sentence, you shall soon forget me and do so that I shall not hinder you and behold Jesus who is teacher of all. That is a great attitude. In one vision, Christ speaks to her of the fact that he will ultimately put all things right that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it and says to her, all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. So there are a lot of great things about her that are worthy to emulate. Emmanuel Swedenborg, on the other hand, is not someone that you would want to imitate. Now remember, right at the end, uh, George McDonald says, no Swedenbergs and no Vale Owens. Don't want any of that. Don't want you going back and telling people this is what the afterlife definitely is like. And Swedenborg was a th Swedish theologian, and he wrote this book called Heaven and Hell, where he says he was actually allowed to experience the process of dying and waking up in the spiritual world so he could tell people just exactly what it was like and that he's absolutely certain that this is the way it is and you had better shape up and do what he says. Uh, and this drifted, as you can imagine, very quickly into all sorts of really awful heresies. But he is not as bad as George Vale Owen, who you've probably never heard of. Um, keep it that way, don't learn any more about him. He was a Church of England clergyman, 
Never trust the clergy. Um, from Liverpool, that might have been a clue, um, who believed that he was receiving communications from the beyond. He would have been right at home with all these ghost tours out here. And he believed he was receiving communications from the spirit world, and he began holding seances and serving as a medium and practicing automatic writing. Um, fortunately, at that stage, there was still discipline in the Church of England, and he was removed from his parish and fired. Today, he would just be accepted, probably. Um, but he fully embraced spiritualism. And what MacDonald was saying in that chapter, and what Lewis said, if you remember, way back when we said at the preface, um, he says, this is a supposal. Do not think that I am trying to state any kind of doctrine. What I want you to do is to think about the nature of choice. That's what he's reflecting on here, and how important it is uh, how we live in this life. And then the harrowing of hell, if that's not an expression you're familiar with, um, you might remember that every Sunday we say the creed, in case you hadn't noticed. Um, every Sunday we say the creed, and in the creed it says, he descended into hell. And the idea of the harrowing of hell, um, and we've just sung about this in a lot of the old Easter hymns, is that Jesus burst the gates of hell, he sets the captives free, um, he brings salvation to those faithful people of the Old Testament that are held there. That is what is called the harrowing of hell. And that's, that's what uh, that little section uh, where MacDonald says there's only one who has descended and he has preached to every spirit that there was. So that's your little glossary, no extra charge. Uh, so some scripture on some of these themes that we've talked about. First, this beautiful illustration at the beginning of the chapter about the bright spirits coming and singing to her right in the instant that she's lost her husband there, um, and she can't feel the sorrow um, because there's joy, and she's full of that joy. And part of the reason for this is because of these scriptures that Jesus gives us um, in John's gospel about what the role of the Holy Spirit is going to be. And Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And then a little bit later, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And the beautiful thing about this is this is a great example of what theologians sometimes call the now and the not yet, where we are not experiencing what the great lady is experiencing in heaven, where we cannot feel sorrow anymore because we're so surrounded with joy, but we have been given the gift and the presence of the Holy Spirit. We've been given the promise of the Holy Spirit come to us and that he will bring to remembrance that incarnate word of God and that word of scripture. He will bring that to remembrance in our lives. And that is a foretaste of that heavenly joy. And then the whole part about uh, pity and true mercy and manipulation and all of that, uh, 
Lewis says so many things that are really, would be really fun to unpack that we don't have time for, but the idea that you can use pity to manipulate people is a profoundly unchristian thing to do. Profoundly unchristian. And yet it happens over and over and over again. And the true pity that he talks about is what he's shown us in the way that these bright spirits behave. You might have noticed that um, in this chapter we just talked about that the great lady, the first thing she does is to beg forgiveness from the dwarf and the tragedian. But you might have forgotten way back in the beginning uh, when Ike, I want my rights, remember him, we just talked about him, and he confronts the murderer and the first thing that happens, the murderer begs his forgiveness uh, because he said, I murdered you in my heart every day because you were such a terrible boss. Um, and that, that quickness um, to ask for forgiveness, that quickness um, to ask for mercy, that quickness to love, that's the true pity, the heavenly pity. And uh, that we cannot let uh, people's insistence on having their own way think that that can shift the axis of heaven or shift the axis of eternal truth, no matter how much people may want to insist that black is white, or as he says here, blue is yellow, um, yeah, whatever it might be that is obviously not true, no matter how much people may want to insist on it, they can't change the constitution of the universe that God has created. And there's some great scripture about this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now that makes very clear that not everyone is going to heaven. Then, on a more happy note from the Psalms, you will show me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy. And your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And then that beautiful verse from Revelation 21, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Those things will not exist in heaven. They cannot because they have passed away. Then the relative strength of heaven compared to hell, this whole idea that that huge gray town and the abyss and the cliffs and everything else is just this tiny little crack. It reminds me a little bit of the Wizard of Oz um, that when you, have y'all seen the Wizard of Oz? I'm so old, I don't even know what people have seen anymore. But in the Wizard of Oz, there's this little man sitting back there in the corner and there's this great projection, whoa, the great and powerful Oz. And the fact of the matter is that it's just this little man. And 
Lewis is trying to tell us that hell is the same thing that it loves to greatly exaggerate itself. And we see this in the book of Revelation. Uh, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. Death and hell, all of it, cast into the lake of fire. There's a great Johnny Cash song there, but I'm not going to do there. Um, and I tell you, this is Jesus uh, right after Peter has said, you are the Christ. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The gates of hell cannot prevail against Jesus. They cannot prevail against the church. They cannot prevail against God's people. Satan loves to talk about how powerful he is, but remember, he is the father of lies, he is the deceiver, and he is not to be believed. Then uh, that whole part about uh, the damned soul is nearly nothing, and that at first they will not, in the end they cannot open their hands for gifts or their mouths for food, or their eyes to see. And Romans 1 is such an important chapter. If you haven't read Romans 1 lately, please do. But it has, I think, one of the most chilling things in all of Scripture that we see unfolding right before us today, this whole idea that although the truth of God is plain to people, that they refuse to acknowledge it, and they refuse to acknowledge God, and then there are those chilling words so God gave them over. He said, as Lewis would say, have it your way. Furthermore, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, he gave them up to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. And what Lewis says here, in this first they will not, in the end they cannot open their hands for gifts. At first they're choosing, it's like addiction, that at the beginning of addiction, you think you're in control. If you've ever known somebody who was an alcoholic or a drug addict, you will know that they think they can stop. And sometimes they can early on. But the farther into the addiction they get, they can't stop anymore. The choice is made for them. They are trapped, and it is impossible for them to choose otherwise. Um, then this part about the harrowing of hell, uh, we see this in Scripture. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. I love that, bring us with him to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, i.e. in hell, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. And there are several other scriptures that talk about this, but it's the idea that, as we see, and Paul um, talks so much about Abraham's faith in the New Testament, that it was credited to him as righteousness. And so this is um, part of the understanding of the church is that Jesus's descent into hell and preaching and breaking down the gates of hell there is what has freed uh, those people to be forever with God. Then this whole part about salvation and time, um, a little bit of scripture uh, just to 
get you thinking about what the scriptures say here. Uh, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So God desires for all people to be saved, but that doesn't mean that all people will be saved. Enter through the narrow gate. Who said that? Jesus. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So there's a section that is out of Lewis's book, The Last Battle, um, which if you're looking for summer reading, um, The Last Battle is so good. It's even better if you've read all the other Chronicles of Narnia first, but if you want to just jump to the last battle, you can do that. And it has some of the best reflections about uh, the afterlife and about uh, those who will not come. And one of the things that happens is they are, uh, in the story, they are in Aslan's country. And remember, Aslan is the great lion, the one who is the Christ figure in the Narnia stories, and they are... Well, I would say they're on the way to Aslan's country. They haven't entered into it. It's sort of like the area we're in, the Great Divorce, where we're in this far green country, but we haven't gone deep yet. And there are these dwarfs that are there. And um, Peter and Edmund uh, and Lucy are trying to convince the dwarfs to follow Aslan. And they not only don't want to follow Aslan, but they're very combative and rude and horrible. And the, the children think, well, we're trying to like, share the good news with you. We, you're in, on the road to paradise, and all you have to do is get up from sitting here in this field and just walk with us, and you'll go into this land that's just beyond your imagination, how wonderful it is. But they absolutely refuse. And so Lucy, who has a very tender heart, begs Aslan, Aslan, said Lucy through her tears, could you, will you, do something for these poor dwarfs? Dearest, said Aslan, I will show you both what I can and what I cannot do. He came close to the dwarfs and gave a low growl. Low, but it set all the air shaking. But the dwarfs said to one another, hear that? That's the gang at the other end of the stable trying to frighten us. They do it with a machine of some kind. Don't take any notice. They won't take us in again. Aslan raised his head and shook his mane. Instantly, a glorious feast appeared on the dwarf's knees. Pies and tongues and pigeons and trifles and ices. And each dwarf had a goblet of good wine in his right hand. But it wasn't much use. They began eating and drinking greedily enough. But it was clear that they couldn't taste it properly. They thought they were eating and drinking only the sort of things you might find in a stable. One said he was trying to eat hay, and another said he had got a bit of an old turnip, and a third said he'd found a raw cabbage leaf. And they raised golden goblets of rich red wine to their lips and said, Ugh, fancy drinking dirty water out of a trough that a donkey's been at. Never thought we'd come to this. 
But very soon, every dwarf began suspecting that every other dwarf had found something nicer than he had, and they started grabbing and snatching and went on to quarreling till in a few minutes there was a free fight and all the good food was smeared on their faces and clothes or trodden underfoot. But when at last they sat down to nurse their black eyes and their bleeding noses, they all said, well, at any rate, there's no humbug here. We haven't let anyone take us in. The dwarfs are for the dwarfs. You see, said Aslan, they will not let us help them. They have chosen cunning instead of belief. Their prison is only in their own minds, yet they are in that prison and so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. So I think that's a great example of the prisons that people's thinking can create where they literally become incapable of seeing or tasting the truth. Then this whole idea of time and choice uh, that we talked about, and uh, the part that I love here at the end is this description about the second coming, that he thinks that the second coming, that the sunrise where this golden light and all the world, every creature in this heavenly country and the land itself, everything begins to sing and the light is shining all over everywhere and it means that Jesus himself is going to come back and Lewis is terrified about that. But it is part of the great good news of the New Testament that Jesus promises to return. Christianity is not a philosophy, it is not a religion, it is a person. It is the person of Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, the center of the Trinity, which is that fountain of life and joy that is pulsing at the center of all reality from before the beginning of time. And all through Jesus' teaching is this idea of wake up, wake up, wake up. Don't be asleep, don't be preoccupied. And he uses every analogy in the book. If the master of the house knew when the thief was coming, he would have been up. Or if the master, if the servant knew when the master was coming back, he would have been up. Um, but this whole idea of wake up, and we've lost that because in our culture, the only thing we think about waking up is setting the alarm clock so we're not late for work. But that's not the way people heard wake up back in this era. Because in this era, the idea of waking and sleeping and watching was very much associated with the job and role of the watchman. We don't have watchmen anymore. But in the ancient world, watchmen were everywhere. They were part of the culture. And they were given the job to watch. And they are to be watching for whatever may be approaching, but particularly an enemy or a king that needs to be welcomed, they're always watching. And the watching was so very important that in most of these ancient cultures, if you were a watchman and you fell asleep on the job, you would be executed. So that's the context for all of this watch language. Listen to some of this. Wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. 
Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of earth will, wait, will wail on account of him. Even so, amen, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And this is the great good news that we look forward to. But part of the point of the great divorce is to be awake, to live being awake to not be seduced by all of the stuff that the world throws at us. And I want to just look at this great Advent hymn. In our tradition, Advent is not just about Jesus coming as the incarnation in the little baby in the manger, although it is about that, but it is also about preparing for the second coming. And um, I would love for y'all to read these words with me, if you can see, since it's a little small tonight. Wake, awake, for night is flying. The watchmen on the heights are crying. Awake, Jerusalem, arise. Midnight's solemn hour is tolling. His chariot wheels are nearer rolling. He comes, prepare ye virgins wise. Rise up with willing feet. Go forth the bridegroom meet, alleluia. Bear through the night your well-trimmed light. Speed forth to join the marriage rite. Zion hears the watchman singing. Her heart with deep delight is springing. She wakes, she rises from her gloom. Forth her bridegroom comes all glorious. In grace arrayed by truth victorious, her star is risen, her light is come. All hail, incarnate Lord, our crown and our reward. Alleluia. We haste along in pomp of song, and gladsome join the marriage throng. Lamb of God, the heavens adore thee, and men and angels sing before thee with harp and cymbals clearest tone. By the pearly gates in wonder, we stand and swell the voice of thunder that echoes round thy dazzling throne. No vision ever brought, no ear hath ever caught such rejoicing. We raise the song, we swell the throng to praise the ages all along. Well, all I can say to that is amen and amen. That is what we are called to. That is what awaits us. And one of the glories of the great divorce that I hope you have caught is that part of what Lewis is doing in this supposal is trying to paint a richer and fuller vision and hope for us of what heaven will be. We have such a dumbed down idea of heaven that is um, a little black and white old-fashioned TV screen view of heaven. And 
it is full of joy and wonder and all the imagery that's in this great hymn, all of which is stolen right out of the Bible. But we don't ever think about this. And instead we think about CNN and Fox News and all of that. And it's no wonder if that's what we think about that we're in despair and we're anxious. But part of the point of studying the great divorce is to help us to think about what our ultimate destiny is, what our ultimate home is, and that day that in thy presence is fullness of joy. And that is what we have to look forward to. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the great gift of this book. We thank you for giving us the time to walk deliberately through all of these chapters and to contemplate the wonder of your love for us. Lord, we thank you for the amazing grace and mercy that you showed in sending your son Jesus to become incarnate, to walk and leave footprints on the sand of this earth that he created, and then to die a willing victim on the shameful cross that he might rise again in glory to bring us with him into your presence. Lord, we pray that you would fire our hearts, that you would fire our minds, that you would fire our souls with an understanding of the glory of your love for us and the beauty of the salvation that you have prepared, that we might walk in joy and love and hold out that hope and promise and word of eternal life to this dark and hurting world. Lord, I thank you for each one of these people here tonight. I pray your blessing on them. I pray that you would guide us through the summer and that you would bring us back safely rejoicing in the fall to meet once more. We thank you and we praise you and offer all these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all so much for being here.